Hey, everybody. It is Monday, September 11th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I know you were glued to your TV set this weekend watching the U.S. Open. Moshe, I think I spent about eight hours <laughs> watching tennis, maybe even more. And it was a great tournament, I thought, on both the women's side and the men's side. Yeah, I had the opportunity Thursday night uh, to watch the semifinals in person and see Coco Golf for the first time. And a, quite an amazing story. Coco Goff, who is 19 years old, we showed that video on Instagram of her dancing as a fan at the U.S. Open when she was like eight or nine years old. Right. Just like 11 years ago. Yeah. 11 years ago, <laughs> she's an eight-year-old dancing to Call Me Maybe. And like 11 years later, she's the champion. She's also just an easy person to root for. She's smart. She works hard. She's gracious. She couldn't have been sweeter with her family there. Um, and at 19 years old, I'm thinking about where I was at 19 years old. I certainly could not have handled all of that pressure. So it's a career that I'm really looking forward to watching. Yeah, we're going to have much more on her and the men's champion a little bit later in the podcast. All right, now to the headlines. New Mexico's governor issues an emergency gun order to suspend open and concealed carry in the state. And now many are questioning whether it's unconstitutional. More than 2,000 people have been killed in Morocco as the worst earthquake in more than 100 years strikes the country. Joe Biden flies to Asia and tries to counter China's influence during his trip to the G20. Hurricane Lee strengthening again as the East Coast and Bermuda continue to watch the storm. The manhunt for the murderer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison continues, and it looks like he may have changed his appearance. The U.S. Energy Secretary takes a road trip to promote electric cars and has a major flub on the way. Jill, as I read this, it felt like a scene out of Veep. We'll explain why a little bit later. And as we were mentioning, history at the U.S. Open as the youngest American woman in 20 years wins. And on the men's side, the oldest winner in Open history. And Moshe has on the same history. Yeah, we're devoting it today to 9-11, and we'll also discuss our memories from that day. All right, New Mexico's attempt at combating gun violence is getting national attention for the drastic and constitutionally questionable limits that it places on the Second Amendment. On Friday, New Mexico's Democratic governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, issued an emergency order suspending the right to carry firearms in public for the next 30 days, declaring gun violence a public health emergency. She says it's a response to the deadly gun violence that has plagued the state over the summer. Many on the left are praising the governor for her courage to take bold action to combat gun violence. Many on the right say she's going too far and going against Second Amendment rights. Lujan Grisham citing the deaths of three children in just three months, as well as two mass shootings in May that left six people dead and 11 hurt. The public health order is a statewide mandate, but open and concealed carry laws are only suspended in cities or counties that are averaging 1,000 or more violent crimes per 100,000 residents per year since 2021. That level is currently only being met by Bernalillo County, and that is the county that includes Albuquerque. This is what this means here. For the following 30 days, it bans open and concealed carry in most public places like sidewalks and parks, and it requires monthly inspections of licensed firearm dealers statewide to ensure compliance with gun laws. Violators could also face civil penalties and a fine of up to $5,000. 
It's in effect for 30 days. And after that, officials will evaluate whether or not they want to renew the order or make adjustments. The National Association for Gun Rights, along with one member who lives in Albuquerque, filed suit just one day after the governor announced her emergency order, arguing that it violates their Second Amendment rights. They pointed specifically to the Supreme Court's landmark ruling last year, which struck down a New York law requiring gun applicants show proper cause to own a gun. Yeah, so Governor Lujan Grisham here said she expected legal challenges. She did a press conference where she took a number of questions saying, how is this even constitutional? You know, these people have open carry permits or concealed carry permits, and you're basically making it illegal despite that being the law. Though notably here, Jill, the criticism is not just coming from gun rights advocates here. It's coming from Democrats, gun control advocates as well. Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California wrote on X, I support gun safety laws. However, this order from the governor of New Mexico violates the U.S. Constitution. No state in the union can suspend the federal constitution. He's referring to the Second Amendment here. There is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. Now, Luhan Grisham here is saying she has no choice. She's got to do something. And she's willing to do this even if uh, she faces a court fight. And this is overturned. She wants to show her constituents her law-abiding constituents who want to be able to safely go to grocery stores and schools uh, and a whole variety of activities, that she's doing something to protect them. New Mexico right now, per capita, has the third highest death rate by firearms in the country, just behind Louisiana and Mississippi. A number of local law enforcement, though, in the state say, this is not constitutional and we're not going to abide by this. In Albuquerque, which you mentioned is subject to this, The uh, mayor and police chief both say they will not enforce the governor's order. The county district attorney, Sam Bregman, who was actually appointed by the New Mexico governor, says he will not enforce it. The Bernalillo County Sheriff, John Allen, also says he will not enforce it. He has reservations as to whether this violates the Constitution. So it's unclear here to what extent this will even be enforced uh, during the 30 days. Uh, Again, some gun control advocates here are worried that this will work against them. This reinforces theories, they were once theories, on the right that the government is going to take away people's guns, suspend the Constitution authoritarian style. And this New Mexico move here by the governor feels like that reinforces it. You have some Republicans in the state already calling for her impeachment over this. Heading overseas now, more than 2,100 people are dead and thousands more have been injured in Morocco after that nation experienced its strongest earthquake in more than 100 years on Friday night. The numbers are expected to go up. Soldiers and aid workers raced to reach destroyed remote mountain villages where people are trying to save people by hand as the government debates whether to accept outside help. The UN estimates that about 300,000 people were affected by that earthquake. It was a 6.8 quake centered about 40 miles south of the city of Marrakesh. Some Moroccans have been complaining on social networks that the government wasn't allowing enough outside help. International aid crews were poised to deploy, but some grew frustrated waiting for the government to officially request assistance. There were sporadic reports of teams arriving in the country. Spain said it sent about 56 rescuers and four search dogs after receiving a formal request for help. Qatar also had a team on the way with specialized equipment. Tunisia also said that it dispatched a delegation with about 50 rescue workers. But many countries around the world were still waiting for the okay from Moroccan authorities amid growing concern by some that with the hours ticking by, the chances of finding survivors is dwindling. 
And the nation just does not seem to be in a hurry to accept help. Yeah, there's questions here as to whether the king of Morocco wants to show that he can rescue his own people as opposed to depending on too many outside countries. That said, thousands of people uh, are now left homeless and fearing more aftershocks. They're sleeping outside. There are images of people in cots, in tents, on the streets of Marrakesh, under canopies in the hard-hit Atlas mountain towns, uh, sleeping outside. And they're planning to do that for the foreseeable future here until they can figure out a place to shelter uh, that won't fall during a uh, expected aftershock. The worst destruction in Morocco was in rural communities, in these hard-to-reach areas, uh, mainly because these roads that snake up the mountains were covered by fallen rocks. So they have to remove the rocks from the road in order to get emergency workers and equipment to these towns. And keep in mind, a lot of infrastructure in Morocco, very old buildings made out of adobe clay, not built for any sort of earthquake. And by the way, while it was a 6.8, which is not the highest you typically see, it was a very shallow quake. So it led to some major, major shaking in the country. Jill, many folks know Marrakesh. If you've ever traveled to Morocco, it's a uh, must-see. And it's a more than 1,000-year-old city. It did see some damage as well as more than a dozen deaths. There was some destruction in the famous Jamal Fana Square, which is the main tourist area there. But the real destruction in the country and really these major death tolls are coming from those mountain villages down where the uh, quake was centered. As they await rescue workers, residents are leading the effort, as you mentioned, trying to dig out uh, survivors by hand, uh, trying to move pieces of homes in the desperate search to uh, pull out people while they're still alive. The catastrophe here really deals a blow to the country of about 37 million citizens. That really is an island of stability in North Africa. It's been a bright spot for investors. Uh, the economy has been growing there. Marrakesh actually due to welcome thousands of officials from the IMF and World Bank next month. About 11 million tourists visited Morocco last year. Most of them do visit Marrakesh. So that's a vital driver of the economy. So until they can convince tourists that their buildings are safe and stable, that's a big concern here in the country. The U.S. is among the many countries that's made clear to the Moroccan government that they will provide significant assistance following the earthquake. They're just waiting for permission from the king to enter the country. Privately, you have Jose Andres, uh, the restaurateur and philanthropist, whose non-for-profit kitchen, World Central Kitchen, is stationing food trucks right now in Morocco to deliver meals to hard-hit areas. Moshe, I know that you traveled to that area last year. Uh, that's where your family's from, right? Or at least your dad's side of the family. Yeah, my dad was born and raised in Marrakesh going back, you know, centuries. Most of the family left in the 60s and 70s. Some families stayed behind. Most are gone now. Appreciate everyone reaching out on Instagram over the weekend to ask about it. We did a legacy trip last year where my father led us on a trip to the home he grew up in in Marrakesh. And we brought some family that hadn't been back there for decades back to see their original home for the first time. My dad's been in touch with uh, friends in the area. Thankfully, they're okay. A lot of cracks, a lot of questions as to the infrastructure. But again, the majority of the damage destruction happening in these smaller villages. Interestingly, as he spoke to people there, I asked him about the standards by which they build stuff there. Do they build up to earthquake standards? And, and he laughed and said, you know, you basically pay off inspectors from the government so they don't fine you. So the standards there, uh, not so much. And that'll be the big question here in a country where they don't really have those regulations. How do they ensure, especially that the tourist infrastructure, the museums, the hotels, um, all the various shops, the places uh, tourists go, given how important that is to the economy, how do they ensure those places are safe? And of course, the king has a huge task on his hands to, in some cases, rebuild entire towns and find housing for tens of thousands of people.
All right, we have plenty more news coming up, but first, a word from one of our sponsors. Mosh, we have talked about how we only want to endorse things on this podcast that we really love, and Bowl and Branch Bedding and Sheets is one of those things. We've had them for a few months now and absolutely have been loving them. Bowl and Branch has made the summer of record heat a bit easier. They're really soft and breathable. We first got them in our house about six or seven months ago, and they absolutely get softer with every wash. Bowl and Branch, that is B-O-L-L and Branch Sheets, they are made with organic cotton, and they don't have the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands. Right now, they're offering a very special deal to the Monus community. You can get 15% off your first order. Use the promo code MONEWS at checkout at bowlandbranch.com. Again, that is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code is MONEWS. There are some exclusions, so make sure you see the site for details. All right, another one of our new sponsors here. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I am really pumped to have them on board, given how much we talk about the importance of mental health on this podcast. Getting over that threshold to talk to a therapist can be tough for some. I know it was for me. And depending on how you grew up and your view of therapy, it can be a challenge. But talking to a mental health professional uh, certainly helped me. It helped me get through some major blocks, get clarity on things in my life and how to process them, move forward. And I know that it's been hugely helpful to a number of people that I know. So we're very glad to have BetterHelp as a sponsor here at Mo News. And they have a deal right now for the Mo News community. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. So let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. You can visit betterhelp.com slash mosh, M-O-S-H, today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mosh, M-O-S-H. All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start with an update on the president's major foreign trip this weekend from CNN. President Biden held a series of high-profile meetings over the last four days aimed at countering China's influence in the developing world. At the G20 in New Delhi, and then during a trip to Vietnam, Biden used his swing through Asia to make the case that the U.S. is a more reliable and trustworthy partner than Beijing, although he emphasized that he did not want a new Cold War with the Chinese. Biden said, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure that we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away, and everyone knows what it's all about. Biden is aiming to create a counterweight to Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific region, although he is trying to strike this balance since many of these countries also need to have an economic relationship with China. Biden flew about 7,500 miles to promote his foreign policy vision, while counterparts Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia, interestingly, both opted out. Both China and Russia sent representatives to the G20 summit, although in the autocratic systems that they lead, they are the only ones who are fully empowered to make decisions. Putin's absence was easy to understand, but Xi's decision to skip the summit, which was the first time that he has done so since coming to power 10 years ago, has left foreign policy analysts a little bit baffled. He flew to South Africa just last month for a summit with several other nations, including India. Yeah, some were saying it might be a thumb in the eye of the Indian leader. China and India do have border disputes. Uh, the Indians see themselves soon enough as equals economically to China. So that could be the rationale here, though everything in China is opaque. So it's been pretty hard to understand his absence here. Either way, it left sort of an opening here for Biden and the Americans. 
to navigate since all these countries are in China's neighborhood, have ties to China, but also looking for those connections to the U.S. As the G20 wrapped up, one other thing that got a lot of attention was the final declaration. And it was notable for how soft it went on Russia this year, leaving out any mention of its invasion of Ukraine. It did include a nod to the Ukrainian people suffering, a focus on getting grain exports out of the country, a call for peace, but no specific condemnation of the invasion. American officials defended the agreement, saying it built on the statement released last year, and the U.S. is still pressing for peace. Keep in mind here, Biden was focused on strengthening ties with the Indians. The Indians have sort of been playing both sides here. When Europe and the U.S. stopped buying Putin's oil, who bought it? The Indians. So clearly here, there were challenges to getting the G20 group to be as harsh on Russia as they've been in the past, though that's not stopping most of Europe and the U.S. from continuing aid to Ukraine. One other notable thing, Jill, people may have uh, seen Biden over the weekend shaking hands with the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Famously, during the visit to Saudi Arabia last year, there was no handshake, but instead a fist bump. This time it appears they were ready for a handshake or Biden was ready to give him a handshake. And it does come after Biden said during his presidential campaign in those early months that he would make the Saudis pay a price for murdering journalist Jamal Khashoggi and make them the pariah they are. But of course, the Saudis recently uh, lowered production of oil, haven't been as responsive to U.S. uh, requests. And the U.S. is working with the Saudis on a larger deal with the Israelis. So clearly here, Biden trying to be a bit more diplomatic with the Saudis on this recent trip. Notably, Biden will be making his way back to the United States today on September 11th. So he'll be commemorating the attacks at a speech to first responders in Anchorage, Alaska. Presidents typically are at the White House or one of the attack sites. Remembrances for the 22nd anniversary will be happening in lower Manhattan at the Pentagon and also in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Yeah, Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Lower Manhattan at ceremonies there. First Lady Jill Biden will be at the ceremony at the Pentagon along with the Defense Secretary. Second Gentleman Douglas Emhoff will be at Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That's where United Flight 93, the only one of the four planes that did not reach its intended target that day, crashed after the passengers there attempted to overpower the hijackers. In his first year as president, Biden did visit all three memorial locations to 9-11. Uh, last year, he marked the occasion at the Pentagon. This year, as he makes his way back from Asia, he'll be in Alaska. From Fox Weather, Hurricane Lee weakened and then strengthened back into a major hurricane Sunday, wavering between a Category 3 and a Category 4 hurricane as it makes its way just north of Puerto Rico and closer to the American East Coast. Lee is forecast to slow down considerably as it moves well north of Puerto Rico, the British and U.S. Virgin Islands, but it will have an impact there and on other Caribbean islands. It remains still too early to determine its long-term track for later this week and how significant the impacts could be for the northeastern United States, Bermuda, and Atlantic Canada. By midweek, Lee will make a turn to the north, eventually moving between Bermuda and the U.S. East Coast late this week. Yeah, right now in the Caribbean, they're experiencing wind, very large waves, and some rain. You can expect the same, potentially, depending on how large the storm is, on the East Coast and Bermuda. We've been watching all those spaghetti lines with the various tracks. The Euro track was taking it sort of into New England and now is slightly edging it east. And so we are still about eight days out from when it would be on the same latitude as the northeastern U.S., So a lot could happen between now and then. But if you live anywhere in the uh, tri-state area, New England, Maine, and especially Nova Scotia, 
This is a storm to monitor. From NPR, it feels like a plot out of Veep. The energy secretary's trip to promote electric cars ends with a call to the cops when Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm set out on a four-day electric vehicle road trip this summer. She knew that charging might be a challenge, but she probably didn't expect anyone to actually call the police. Well, Granholm's trip through the southeast from Charlotte to Memphis, Tennessee, was intended to draw attention to the billions of dollars that the White House is pouring into green energy and clean cars. On town hall stops along her road trip, she made a passionate, optimistic case for this transition. But between stops, Granholm's entourage at times had to grapple with the present situation, which in many cases means a lack of chargers. Like when her caravan of electric vehicles was planning to have a fast charge in Grovetown, a suburb of Augusta, Georgia, her advance team realized that there weren't going to be enough plugs to go around. One of the station's four chargers was broken and others were occupied. So an energy department staffer tried parking. So an energy department staffer tried to park a non-electric vehicle by one of those working chargers in order to reserve a spot for the approaching Secretary of Energy. One family that was boxed out on a sweltering day with a baby in the vehicle was so upset that they decided to get the authorities involved. Mosh, they called the cops. (laughs) They called the cops on the Secretary of Energy. And the sheriff's office said they couldn't do anything. Because it turns out it's not illegal for a non-electric car to claim a charging spot in Georgia. That led the Energy Department staff uh, to scramble to try to smooth over the situation. That included sending other vehicles to slower chargers until both the frustrated family and the Secretary of Energy both had room to charge. The U.S. government, of course, is pouring billions into a nationwide network of electric chargers, trying to fix the very problem that Granholm was encountering here. Jill, the NPR piece quoted a guy named John Ryan, which is then what led me to Jonah Ryan. And I'm like, just imagining a Veep situation where Julie Louis-Dreyfus has, you know, Jonah Ryan, you know, blocking out an electric charger. It's a funny situation, but it is the reality. I mean, we discussed this months back when I ended up renting an electric car and was dealing with a charging situation in Florida that had me spending many hours in a Walmart parking lot. Now, at the same time, electric vehicle advocates here point out, statistically speaking, that the vast majority of trips you take with your electric car are local. You know, you drive around town, you uh, commute to the grocery store, and then you head back home, where presumably you have a charger in your driveway, in your garage, in your building. And yet, this idea of road trips are a big idea in America. And right now, they're not really possible in major parts of the country because of a lack of chargers. And that remains people's number one fear of getting an electric car is getting stuck somewhere. And so it appears, at least in the case here of the energy secretary, trying to make her case that she sort of reinforced the current problem that we have. From ABC News, the manhunt continues for a 12th day in Pennsylvania for the murderer who escaped from a county prison. Danello Cavalcante has been spotted again, and it looks like he has changed his appearance. This is according to police early Sunday. They've been trying to narrow in on this Pennsylvania fugitive. A sighting was reported late Saturday in the northern Chester County area near Phoenixville. That's about 30 miles northwest of Philadelphia. Cavalcante had visited the home of a person that he worked with years ago who was not home. This is according to Pennsylvania State Police. Cavalcante visited another former work colleague's home earlier Saturday night, 
who was also not home. The escaped inmate was seen on the home's doorbell camera and the homeowner alerted authorities. Yeah, it appears the police uh, took some images from that ring camera, and it, it appears here that Calvacante has changed his appearance, according to the new images released by the U.S. Marshal Service. He is now clean-shaven and last seen wearing a yellow or green hooded sweatshirt, a black baseball cap, green prison pants, and white shoes, according to the police. He apparently has also been able to uh, get a hold of some cars. He was recently spotted over the weekend driving a white 2020 Ford Transit van. The van was then abandoned in a field, and they continue to be on his case. But really remarkable, Jill, here, hundreds of law enforcement officers, 12 days, you know, people continuing to be told, you know, lock your doors. He continues to get spotted on people's doorsteps, uh, ringing doorbells, stealing things from people's yards to continue to stay alive out there. And at least in this case, he's now trying to connect with former colleagues to see if someone will help him. From NBC News, Spain's Soccer Federation President Luis Rubiales announced his resignation Sunday. It comes after the intense public criticism he received after forcibly kissing soccer player Jenny Hermoso at the Women's World Cup final. Rubiales writing in a statement, I do not want Spanish football to be negatively impacted by this disproportionate campaign. Last month, he ignited a firestorm with his actions at the World Cup final, which kicked off this wider conversation about sexism in Spanish society. For several weeks, the country's top politicians and the heads of Spain's regional football federations have been calling for him to step down. Yeah, Rubiales said in an interview, he spoke with his father, he spoke with his daughters, decided this was the best thing. It does come as he was suspended by FIFA, the international soccer organization. There's been the launch of a sexual assault investigation into him in Spain. And so he was convinced it's probably time to go here. He continues to assert, though, he's done nothing wrong, says he has faith in the truth and determination to do everything to make sure the truth prevails. In the meantime, the prosecutor's office in Spain said late last week that it was seeking to charge Rubiales with sexual assault and coercion based on a law passed last year that eliminates the difference between sexual harassment and sexual assault in the country. And so we'll continue to monitor the legal developments now that he's resigned from his post. From ESPN, 19-year-old Coco Guff won her first major title on Saturday at the U.S. Open with a victory over Ariana Sabalenka in front of an adoring crowd. After the match, she fell to the ground and lay on her back on the court before sobbing in celebration. Moments later, Goff telling the star-studded crowd, which included Kevin Durant, Diane Keaton, Nicole Kidman, Spike Lee, Mindy Kaling, and 2006 champ Maria Sharapova, that she still hadn't fully processed the victory. She is the youngest American to win the U.S. Open since Serena Williams in 1999 and the first American player to win a major title since 2020. After the match, several high-profile celebrities, including former President Obama, Michelle Obama, and President Biden, sent her congratulatory messages over social media. During her encore interview after winning, she revealed that today was the first time she had seen her father cry. They then showed her father uh, motioning no from the player's <laughs> box. The young star laughing. Despite still being a teenager, Goff has been one of the sport's most recognizable stars as she's burst onto the scene in the past couple of years. Uh, at Wimbledon in 2019, she reached the fourth round as a 15-year-old qualifier. Since then, she's won five WTA titles. She reached the final at the French Open last year. The poise she showed, Jill, was very incredible. She already has several high-profile sponsorship deals and a growing presence on social media. 
She continues to remain under the spotlight here. The expectations for her career are immense. You know, we've seen a lot of young athletes crumble under the pressure and need to take breaks under that pressure. And she did say in interviews that the pressure has been overwhelming at times. And so let's hope that she does have the support around her to ensure that uh, she's able to manage everything that's going to be coming at her in the coming weeks and months. And on the men's side, 36-year-old Novak Djokovic beat Daniil Medvedev in three straight sets. Djokovic is now the oldest winner on the men's side, again, 36 years old. And he has tied what has been considered one of the most unreachable records in tennis, Margaret Court's 24 Grand Slam wins. Yeah, so this win was a redemption of sorts for Djokovic, who lost to Medvedev back at the U.S. Open final two years ago. Jill, it was quite a scene as he won. He ran to the box to celebrate with his wife and kids, incidentally hugging Matthew McConaughey first. McConaughey got the first hug. He happened to be there. Uh, <laughs> I was like, was is that Matthew wearing... McConaughey? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Matthew McConaughey got the first Ooh. hug with Djokovic <laughs> after he won. Then Djokovic put on a Mamba Forever shirt with an image of Kobe Bryant and Bryant's 24 jersey number. Uh, it's a reference to Djokovic's, as you mentioned, 24th Grand Slam. I thought it was interesting because in the questions after the match, they asked him about why he was wearing that shirt. And he said that that he and Kobe Bryant were actually really good friends. And that when Djokovic was trying to come back from injuries a few years ago, Kobe Bryant was somebody that he really turned to who was like, you know, you can get through it and really helped him get past his injuries and, and bring his game back to, to the level that he's playing now. All right, before we get to On This Day in History, one more sponsor we want to thank this week for supporting us at the Mo News Podcast, Athletic Greens. One way to ensure you get all your important ingredients is by using Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I first tried it last year when I was having trouble getting all the nutrients that I need to get. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. AG1 is easy, it's quick, it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals, pre and probiotics to support your digestion and gut health. And right now they have a special deal for the Mo News community with your first purchase of AG1. Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit right now drinkag1.com slash Mo News. That is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it just one time for one month. Again, drinkag1.com slash monews to start to take ownership of your health. All right, now time for On This Day in History. Today, we will devote it to 9-11-2001. Today marks 22 years since that Tuesday morning when 19 terrorists linked to the extremist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four commercial passenger jets and carried out suicide attacks against multiple targets in the U.S., Two of the planes were flown into the World Trade Center in New York. Within a few hours, both of those twin towers collapsed into rubble, demolishing a large section of lower Manhattan. A third plane hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, just outside D.C. And then a fourth plane that was also headed to Washington, still unclear today whether it was headed towards the U.S. Capitol or the White House. Well, the passengers and crew were alerted to what was going on with those other planes, and they fought back leading to the plane being downed outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 people were killed in those terrorist attacks. It's actually the largest loss of life by a foreign attack on American soil. The Bush administration at the time was just eight months old. It responded by declaring a war on terrorism, creating the Department of Homeland Security, creating the TSA, immediately invaded Afghanistan. That war would last 20 years. 
going from a battle against Al-Qaeda to a democracy-building mission, the U.S. and allies would take out much of the leadership of Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, would get away, but eventually be found and killed by the U.S. Special Forces just about 10 years later during the Obama administration. We would, of course, end up leading a war in Iraq as well that would last two decades. To this day, we still have troops in Iraq. Again, a mission there that evolved from presumably dealing with terrorism and weapons of mass destruction to democracy building. Uh, A lot to discuss, of course, Jill, on this day. But I don't think we've ever personally discussed where we were each at on 9-11. What are your memories from that day? So I was a senior in college. I was at the University of Michigan. And I remember just getting up. It was a beautiful, beautiful fall day. So the same weather that was in New York, which was like that crisp, blue skies, absolutely incredible fall day was what we were experiencing in Ann Arbor as well. And I remember, I think one of my friend's dads called us and was like, you know, put on the TV. We put on the Today Show. I remember Katie Couric and Matt Lauer and Al Roker and that team getting me and my friends anyway through what was going on. And we're all New Yorkers. So we were trying to call our family and our friends and and our loved ones who were in New York, but none of the phones were going through. And so it was really scary. It was really frustrating. And then classes were canceled. And and that was it. I mean, the course of history forever was changed. What about you? So I was a sophomore in college, but I happened to go to school in DC at GW. And that day, actually, Jill marked the first day of my internship on Capitol Hill. So I was a new intern for Senator Dick Durbin, who happens to still be there from Illinois, uh, got there super early and watched the events unfold in the Senate office. Then sirens would go off in the Capitol following uh, the plane crashing into the Pentagon. And they're like, we think another plane is headed here. We all need to evacuate the buildings right now. So we evacuated that day. I made my way back to campus. And if you're familiar with George Washington University, it's located pretty central, just a few blocks from the State Department, a few blocks from the White House, got back to campus. There were no landlines. There were no cell phones. And all I had was AOL Instant Messenger. My mom actually still has a printout of our conversation that day where I I am to her, like, I'm okay. I, you know, left the Capitol. And during those early hours, Jill, in D.C., there were so many rumors. Now, this is the pre-social media era. So we were hearing there was a bombing at the State Department. There's a bomb that exploded outside the White House. It was a very scary time on that day because just the rumors were going about and even TV networks were trying to follow them all. And you could see from our dorm the smoke rising above the Pentagon and the winds that they were blowing the wind onto the National Mall across the Potomac River. So that is what reinforced this idea like, oh, my God, they bombed stuff in D.C. Needless to say, no phones were working until about late morning. Uh, I get my first call on the landline on the campus phone, and it's the college newspaper saying, you're a reporter here. Where are you? And I'm like, you're right. They're like, this is a big story. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> I'll be there in a second. And so I ran to the college newspaper. They had extra like bicycles. And they're like, get out there. Start interviewing people. See how close you can get to the White House. And so I was out and about all that day and actually filed a report that found recently online for there was an AP, a wire service for college newspapers called UWire. And I filed a report from D.C. on the on what was happening on college campuses on 9-11 that day. A budding journalist, uh, one of your first stories. So I actually, two of my uncles were in the FDNY at the time. So it was extremely scary on on a personal note, wondering if they were working, if they were in the towers. 
I subsequently learned that they were not actually there while those towers fell, but they basically did those 24-hour shifts, 24 hours on, 24 hours off, working the pile, looking for survivors in the days after 9-11. The one other thing that I will say is that this day has taken on uh, some different meaning for me in the past few years solely because my husband um, lost his closest, closest girlfriend, a friend that's a girl, Brooke Alexandra Jackman. And I never met her, but I actually get quite emotional about it just because the way that he describes her, she was working for Cantor Fitzgerald. It was actually her last week there. She wanted to switch careers. She was going to into education. She was going to Berkeley and she was just working until she was about to leave to, to go to that program in California. Um, and she was killed in that. You have to excuse me because I, again, I, I've never met her, um, but it feels like such an incredible loss. And we have actually, my daughter is named partly for her. My daughter is Alexandra. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a tough day in my house. It's one of those few events, Jill, where you know everyone remembers where they were if you were alive that day and how you experienced it and the shock of it. And it's pretty remarkable that you know we're 22 years removed from it today. But it still has that impact like like it happened yesterday. Yes. Yeah, so sending love to everybody out there uh, for whom this is a difficult day. Our thoughts are with you guys. A big thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. We'll be covering the remembrances all day on the Mo News Instagram account. So you can follow coverage there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News podcast.